This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We have an interesting episode as we are having a special guest. Normally we have researchers, but this time we have a political correspondent of British daily newspaper, The Guardian. During his work time, our guest is covering the UK politics, but in his free time, he has written a highly acclaimed book called The Miracle Pill, Why a Sedentary World is Getting It All Wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Mr. Peter Walker. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Yeah, great to have you. So really interesting story that you are a political correspondent and ended up writing a book about <laughs> sedentary behavior. So yes. uh, uh, how did you get interested in sedentary behavior and, and daily activity? Well, it came through a kind of roundabout way that um, whilst writing kind of news mainly in politics for the uh, for the Guardian, I also have kind of helped keep going this blog about everyday bike riding, which has the uh, imaginative name of the bike blog, um, and it you know goes into a lot of stuff of why more people don't ride bikes and things like that. So, about three years ago, I wrote a book, kind of based on everything I'd learned um, about you know, the case for more everyday bike use. And one of the chapters in that was obviously the kind of uh, health benefits that people individually get when they ride bikes. And then also the societal benefits that come, you know, when more people do it. Um, and I was amazed to find how big a problem inactive living is and how little it's actually talked about. I mean, you know, people on the media will, you know, talk about other public uh, health crises all the time. You know, obviously COVID now, but in the past people have talked about obesity a lot. But inactivity barely gets a mention, but it's responsible for, you know, this is probably an uh, underestimate, but it's the best estimate that's ever been done, over 5 million deaths around the world every year. And in the UK, it is in normal times supposedly responsible for one in six deaths, that's about 100,000 deaths every year. And <clears throat> that almost became the most interesting chapter of the cycling book that I wrote. So I really, really wanted to write more. So through my agent, I said, you know, why not have this book about you know, how the world became so inactive, you know, how, how it happened reasonably quickly. Um, and it all came from there, really. You know, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a scientist. Um, I don't really have any background in it. It's just, I thought it's this incredibly fascinating subject that <clears throat> not many people were really talking about. Mm, yeah. So really interesting. So you ended up writing a bike book, everyday biking first, and then, then saw an interest and there is some books about sedentary behavior and daily activity. So how did you find your way? I, d I haven't had time to get and read your book yet. So what's your kind of angle where you come come to see this, this team? My, my angle is basically as a non-expert, as someone who is, <clears throat> you know, like everybody else, living in this world where active living is, you know, very difficult. And it's not necessarily people's fault if they can't be more active in their uh, everyday lives. I just wanted to make it as general interest as I possibly could. So it's partly a kind of um history lesson into, you know, how we got the way we are, 
And just to kind of expose to people what this issue is, you know, basic things like what's the difference between everyday activity and uh, exercise? Because a lot of people won't have even necessarily thought about that. Um, and I got into the history of, you know, how it was only as recently as 1953 that scientists, you know, first proved that being physical, you know, on a regular basis was actually good for you, which I thought was amazing. And that was actually two years after the link between smoking and uh, cancer was first made. Um, and I just wanted to kind of explore it in kind of various themes, really. And <clears throat> I guess the big thing I, I wanted to make the point that, you know, whilst it's good to be active if you can, and ultimately it's, you know, up to us if we do it, there's much, much bigger, fear, you know, bigger pressures. I didn't want anybody to put down my book and feel guilty and feel like, oh my goodness, you know, I should be doing more. So I wanted to point out that, you know, for example, I still get a lot of my everyday activity from riding a bike. But in London, there's not many safe cycling routes. I've got the option because I've been cycling for years. You know, I'm a middle-aged man, which in Britain is one of the kind of demographics that's more likely to cycle. <clears throat> but someone else who might, you know, very sensibly think, oh, I don't want to share the road with these cars going past me at, you know, 30 or 40 miles an hour. That is all kind of entirely closed off. Um, so I wanted people to kind of realise the context, but I also wanted to have this kind of quite positive message. And, you know, one of the most interesting things is, whilst a lot of people know all these kind of targets, they should reach like 30 minutes of activity a day, five days a week, or 10,000 steps a day. The research also shows that even if you do quite a bit less, it's still actually really, really good for you. You know, at kind of mm. low levels, the dose response curve for physical activity is really amazing. And I wanted to get that across to people. You know, don't feel guilty if you can't do it or don't do it. But by the same token, even if you do a bit, it's still worth doing. Mm. And and when you said that you are not an expert or a scientist uh, and wrote it from a non-expert's perspective, how do you see the difference? How do the scientists talk about this and how do you talk about this? And what's the difference between the perspectives? What do you feel it is? Well, I mean, the scientists are writing for a different audience. You know, I read hundreds and hundreds of papers on physical uh, activity, and these are like scientific papers. So, you know, they're full of graphs and tables and references and things like that. You know, they're incredibly interesting, and some of them actually genuinely really, really readable. But it's this big picture made up of thousands of thousands of different parts. And so, for example, you know, someone might be an expert on you know, the basics of why kind of being active is good for you. Someone else might be an expert in why populations don't do it. But then someone else is an expert in, for example, why particularly younger people are becoming increasingly uh, inactive. Other people specialize in, you know, the reasons why activity as you get older is, you know, a really, really vital thing. And then there's the things like sitting down, you know, because that's the kind of parallel crisis of people sit down far too long. And I know that I certainly do. Um, and then the connection between uh, obesity and uh, inactivity, which are kind of connected crisis, crises, but they're very much not the same thing. And so, you know, I had the privilege, you know, which journalists have often got, which is to speak to a lot of people who know a lot more about these individual things as, you know, than, than I do and try and put them all together into a kind of readable total. Mm. So, so I understood that you interviewed quite a lot of people for the book who did you interview and what do you think who who which experts gave them the most in, interesting points 
I mean, it's difficult. I wouldn't really want to pick anyone because it depended on the area, really. I mean, on the kind of basic academic part of uh, physical uh, inactivity, there's a Harvard University professor called uh, Aimin Lee, who is very much seen as the leading expert in this. She's authored and co-authored hundreds of papers. And yet she still found the time to talk to me two or three times, which is really, really nice because she's very good at explaining this complicated subject in a straightforward way. But I... I spoke to lots of other people who've been kind of talking about this stuff for years. There's a guy called Stephen Blair, who was one of the lead authors on the first US government guidelines on people being active, which was about 20 or 30 years ago. He's now, from memory, about 84, 85, but he's still really, really interested and was fascinating and, you know, very good to talk to. He gave me a lot of time to, to a chat. Um, in other areas, for example, I did quite a lot on why the kind of built environment we live in is so difficult to move around in, you know, as a kind of human, in a human-powered way. And I spoke to um, a Danish architect and city planner called Jan Gale, who, again, is quite old. He's, he's, he was 83 when I talked to him. He's 84 now. And he was completely fascinating on pointing out the ways that some cities kind of make it easy for people to, you know, cycle and walk and others don't. And the the many ways, you know, the many lessons he's learned, and also the fact that he started as an architect in the 60s when it was all about building high-rise blocks and inner-city kind of motorways and how he broke away from that. Um, but basically, every single area I talked to, there were really, really interesting people. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to single anyone out. There was lots of, you know, very interesting personal stories too. Mm. So, so you said about this Danish architect, what were his points that how should we build the cities? Of course, for example, a lot of bike lanes and so on. But what are the main points when when designing cities? I mean, his his thing is that people should be um, in, invited, is the words he, he, he uses, to cycle or walk or just to mingle. Obviously, you know, in COVID days, we can't quite mingle as much as we'd like to. But I mean, his background was that, you know, he came out as a uh, modernist and his wife, who is um, a psychologist, you know, said to him, you know, why are architects more interested in people and the way people use these, you know, spaces and buildings? So he basically re-educated himself. He spent a lot of time going to Italian Renaissance cities and towns and, you know, looking at the layouts, the plazas and stuff like that. So a lot of it is just about natural stuff. And it, it depends, you know, what you're talking about. So yes, for cycling, you do need to have, um, you know, safe cycling and very obviously safe cycling. So on main roads, you need separated bike lanes. On smaller roads, you need, you know, much less traffic and lower traffic speeds, all the stuff that, you know, people in cycling have been talked about for a long time. <clears throat> But, you know, for example, he was pointing out that one thing Denmark does quite a lot of is if there's a main road, they'll have like a little kind of median pedestrian strip in the middle of the road so people can cross you know one lane and then wait and cross a second lane and his thing about people walking is that you shouldn't have to you know walk to a junction to find a proper crosswalk to cross over you should be able to cross over wherever you want and he is very rude about the british thing of you know britain and some other kind of sit uh, countries like uh, australia does it too has this system of having these crossings, we have to press a button so the traffic signal turns so pedestrians can cross the road. And, you know, he's furious at this. He says people should be able to cross the road when they want. It shouldn't be this kind of uh, application that they need to make. Um, 
And there's other very, very straightforward things like, you know, if you're driving a car down a main road, then you don't have to stop and wait at every side junction. And you think pedestrians walking down the street should be the same. So there should be um, pedestrian crossings like zebra crossings at every crosswalk. So the default is the drivers, the drivers stop and the pedestrians just keep on going. Um, but it goes into all sorts of other places. He's talked a lot about the way buildings are set out. So, for example, if you're designing um, a block of apartments, there should be like life on the ground levels. There should be cafes and shops and things like that. So people will mingle. And, you know, communal areas should be ones that people want to spend time in. So it shouldn't just be this kind of, you know, windy grassland that no one, you know, really, it doesn't really belong to anyone. It should be more like a courtyard that people feel is kind of part of their public space. So, you know, the answers are, it depends what you're looking at, but there's, you know, in many ways, they're really, really very simple things. Mm. And and usually, of course, architects are designing buildings, but probably designing cities need a political decisions and and you you have been covering the politics for quite a, some time and you know how the politics work especially in in to the extent. uk to extent so how how do you see what would be needed actually to make the cities support activity more what would need to happen in the politics or how could we promote this how could we make it happen I mean, you can sometimes get quite big change at, you know, just a city level with a mayor or someone like that who's very into it. So Michael uh, Bloomberg, when he was a New York City mayor, he built quite a lot of their, you know, cycling um, infrastructure and changed quite a lot. But then at the same time, you know, New York for a very compact city is still very dominated by cars. Um, before he was a prime minister in the UK, Boris Johnson was London's mayor. And he also built a few bike lanes, which are very good. But again, it's only part of the picture. To change it, you basically need to do what countries like the Netherlands and Denmark and, you know, to a certain extent, countries like Germany have done, which is to have decades of change led from national government where they say, right, you know, we are going to create spaces that are safe for people to cycle and and walk. And as to what's going to make them do it, I mean, that's an interesting question. And, and you know, almost the more pressing question is, Why haven't they done it now? You know, in the UK, you have, you know, not only a hundred thousand deaths a year from inactive living, you have public health experts and doctors who will happily say, you know, the, the, um, cost of treating people who are ill for decades because of inactive living means that the national, uh, health system in the UK is not going to be viable quite soon because, you know, there'll be too many older ill people. Um, One of the interesting things was I wrote the book during the first UK lockdown for COVID, which took place, you know, from about March. And it was quite weird to be writing a public health book, speaking to uh, epidemiologists and people like that, when, you know, for for years they'd been saying things and no one had really been paying attention to them. And obviously, coronavirus is a very different health crisis. But You know, one of the, one of the reasons that British politicians and to an extent American ones and, you know, similar countries <clears throat> say that they don't want to do anything is that they say that people don't want to, you know, have their lives interfered with. They don't want politicians telling them what to do. Uh, there's this very British phrase called the nanny state, you know, this idea that people are trying to micromanage people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's been quite a resonant idea for years, but in, 
coronavirus, you've had this situation where, again, to save lives from a public health crisis, entire countries have been essentially shut down for months. And I wonder if that's going to change public health arguments in the future, if people are going to say, well, you know, the coronavirus lockdowns in the UK maybe saved, I don't know, 150, 200,000 lives, but we have inactivity, which is killing 100,000 people every year. Why aren't we doing anything more? And those conversations haven't started yet, but I wonder if they might. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a good, good point. Introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting edge, next generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is S-E-N-S dot Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. And how, how would you see the kind of a roadmap for long-term change that, the, for example, the politicians would, would do it decades of work what what would be the initial steps that you could start to make this change well i mean you know a lot of it is really easy it just takes time and the whole problem with it it's not kind of glamorous it's not like building a big bridge or a kind of tunnel under the sea or stuff like that it is or you know anything like that it's it's doing very boring things in cities and you know i think some towns and cities have got used to the idea of building separated bike lanes, but the more politically difficult thing is basically restricting car traffic. And that's what you really need to do because, you know, in a lot of countries, an enormous number of people drive for pretty much every journey, even ones which would only take you 10 or 15 minutes to walk or five minutes to go by bike. And so one of the initial changes can be to make residential neighborhoods much less dominated by the car. And in the UK, some of this has been taking place because of COVID. There has been um, this kind of understanding that if people are traveling around and they can't use particularly public transport in the same numbers because they obviously can't crowd in, then, you know, how do you stop the roads from becoming completely gridlocked? So <clears throat> some towns and cities have tried these kind of things which other countries have done for decades, which is just kind of filtering the roads. So some roads are, you know, one way or no entry to cars, but people on foot or bikes can just get through. So the idea is that, you know, if you live five minutes bike ride away from your local shop, it might actually take you longer by car because you have to go a kind of round route. <clears throat> and that's caused a lot of anger because it's the first time in Britain for a while that the dominance of the car has been questioned. So. I think, you know, the big lesson for politicians is that they just have to be bold. They have to do it because it's the right thing to do. Obviously, they have to listen to public opinion, but they shouldn't let a kind of minority of objectors have um, a veto over over everything. And that's been the case, you know, often in the uh, in the past. 
Mm, yeah, I, I I've been living a few years in Liverpool and and they have very little bike lanes. And I think the the kind of thing was that they are not building bike lanes because nobody's biking. And of course, if it's if it's really unsafe to of course. cycle, nobody is cycling. But I I think that's how it it was. And I, I think in London it's it's much better. I don't know why. Is it because it's more uh, traffic jams, so people actually have incentives to cycle more, and then there's been more bike lanes. I don't know, but that, that's one of it. I mean, big. driving in London is quite difficult, and particularly parking is a big disincentive for for driving. If you drive, you know, there's the um, congestion charge if you drive into central London. But also, once you get there, parking is ridiculously expensive. And that's actually a good thing. Mm, yeah, yeah. So some some incentives which are not designed for that, but exactly become, become useful. And And how do you feel the role of researchers? What should researchers be doing that they can influence the politics and political decision making more? I think it's a difficult one because I think, you know, if you set out as a researcher to influence someone, then, you know, you're almost setting out with a, <clears throat> you know, with an, a kind of results in your mind before you start really. I think the thing to do is to just try and, I guess, communicate as best you can. I mean, you know, liaising with journalists is always a good way to do it. And, and obviously a lot of universities, a lot of academic institutions are actually very good at that. Um, you could even be more kind of activist. One of the chapters that I wrote, the thing I mentioned earlier about the fact that the links between physical activity and uh, health were only discovered in 1953. The guy did that, a guy called Dr. Jerry Morris, um, who is an incredibly influential researcher, but he's in the UK anyway, he's really not very, very well known. Um, he He made the discovery of activity being good for you by um trying to find out why London's transport workers, why the conductors on the buses, the people who'd go up and down the stairs and the buses collecting the bus fares, this was in the uh, in the 50s, had half the rates of heart disease of the bus drivers. And obviously eventually worked out as the fact they were on their feet all day, going up and down flights of steps because these are double-decker buses. But Jerry Marshall Morris is a completely, completely fascinating man because he was a kind of activist researcher um, as well as producing, you know, um, research for a long, long time. I mean, he did his breakthrough research when he was in, I think he was about 40, and he lived to be 99 and basically never stopped. He carried on doing papers. Um, but I talked to former colleagues of uh, his, because he died in 2008, and they were saying he was always like writing to ministers because he was kind of quite obsessed with the idea that people were not being uh, active enough. Um so he wrote to British ministers all the time and said, you know, I've got an idea how we can do this, you know, and then if they didn't answer, he'd kind of, you know, give their officers a call saying, oh, you know, I'm surprised I didn't get an answer. Um, and he was very frustrated that nothing got done. But I don't know. I mean, that's not going to be for everyone, but that's, you know, something people can do. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that researchers could be also activists in a way and then working in collaboration with journalists and and you said that some researchers are doing it well probably some are not doing it that well so how how do you work with the journalist how how does the process <clears throat> go what kind of things researchers should be bringing the journalist what would be your advice from the 
from the other side? <clears throat> I mean, a lot of it comes through university press offices, which are some of which are quite good. And the main issue is really that there's so much research produced, a lot of it just doesn't get seen. And, you know, if you're a journalist, you might um, just simply not know about stuff. I guess my advice would be to get to know a few journalists who have interests in the particular areas that you do. So, you know, um, if you have, um, um, you know, if you're a researcher who researches into a particular area of science or something like that, then read the articles by the science correspondents for national newspapers and, you know, even local newspapers and websites and stuff like that, and see who sometimes writes about the stuff you're interested in and just try and, you know, send an email to them. Um, uh, there's some academics who are quite vocal on like kind of social media. Um, and that kind of gets their research quite well known because it means that when they do tweet about something, people, you know, or send Facebook updates or whatever it is, people tend to notice it. Um, but it's difficult because again, it depends on how kind of, you know, media friendly your research is. A lot of research can be incredibly important, but it's quite difficult to explain to the general public and, and, you know, a lot of the inactivity papers that I read were, I don't know, they weren't, for me, completely, completely interesting, but they might be doing something that's already partly known. Like they could be, I don't know, a meta study looking into heart disease rates for inactive people. Um, uh, but, but, you know, that stuff has been done before, but not in the same depth. You know, a lot of the papers just give new information on top of what, you know, might, might be known. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is very, very relevant to people's lives, like all research into, you know, sitting down too long. That's what a lot of people do. So I think the thing is just to be kind of as as open as you possibly can. Mm. And and how do you feel like sometimes in, in kind of clickbait uh, <laughs> links and news, uh, you are you are reporting like findings from one study? And some themes you cannot really say anything with one study. So how do you feel? Should the researchers be reporting or contacting journalists from result of one paper? Or is it like their decade of their work <laughs> and kind of bring it together? Or how, how do you see it? How, how much research you should have it to be kind of uh, good enough to be reporting? I mean, if you're... If you are confident in your paper, you know, if it's a properly peer-reviewed published paper, et cetera, et cetera, and you think it's good enough, then I think it's fine to go with one paper. You know, I think the key thing would be to perhaps try and liaise with a science correspondent who you trust, you know, so you can say, look, I'll give this story to you, but can you just listen to, you know, my ideas for how you should, you know, not kind of misinterpret it. So I think it's fine. I think the public are fine with scientific papers which say, you know, this study indicates something, however it doesn't prove it, et cetera, et cetera. There's, you know, several things we don't know because, you know, I think people are more scientifically literate than you might think. But then the other thing to bear in mind is that once you've got a press release out there, you cannot control it. And if um, another newspaper writes it up in a kind of misleading way, I mean, you can complain to them and there's you know, readers, editors, there's, you know, the press watchdog, there's all sorts of things like that. But ultimately, you haven't got any control over it. I mean, um, with a book I've just written, um, one of the kind of UK tabloid newspapers um, published an extract from the book. 
and they'd kind of condensed a few bits down. So I had to kind of re-edit it so it made sense. But the headline they put on the article would very much not be the headline that I choose. But you have to an extent just kind of accept you've given control away. You know, you can do your best. But once something's public, particularly in this era when people can tweet about things or write blog posts about them, it's not entirely yours anymore. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.